The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Well, thank you for that welcome. It's uh, good to be here. I've read so much about Westminster over the years, and I'm indebted to the heritage of uh, Westminster and its scholars, and uh, it's uh, just an honor to uh, to be here. So, the title of my lecture today is "The Use of the Old Testament in the Apocalypse and Its Bearing on uh, the Character of Christ, the Character of His Oral Word, and the Character of His Written Word." There's been much literature written over the past 50 years on the topic of the authority of the Bible, especially discussions within so-called evangelicalism concerning the nature of the notions of infallibility and inerrancy. Recent writers have especially questioned the traditional understanding of inerrancy. In particular, a central idea underlying inerrancy has been that since God is true and without error, and therefore His oral word is true and without error, unswervingly true, consequently His word in Scripture is unswervingly true. Now, this implication, and what it's often taken to be an implication or, or a theological inference uh, that reasons from God's flawless character to flawless Scripture has been challenged recently, and it's been argued that it is a mere logical deduction that is never made exegetically in the Bible. Accordingly, it's argued that though God, of course, is true and uh, perfect and without error, He can and indeed has inspired all of Scripture in such a way that nevertheless... The marks of human fallibility are woven into it. Thus, there are what we would consider to be, quote-unquote, errors in the biblical text, but God has inspired those mistakes to, be, uh, to form a part of his message to his people. There have been recent books that have argued this. But perhaps the clearest example is A.T.B. McGowan's recent book, The Divine Authenticity of Scripture, Downers Grove, InterVarsity Press, 2007. McGowan says, for example, quote, the basic error of the inerrantists, for, as a, using a pun, I guess, is to insist that the inerrancy of the, aut- of the autographer is a direct implication of the biblical doctrine of inspiration or divine inspiration. In order to defend this implication, the inerrantists make an unwarranted assumption about God. The assumption is that, given the nature and character of God, the only kind of scripture he could breathe out was scripture that is textually inerrant. If there was even one mistake in the autographer, then God cannot have been the author because he is incapable of error, in quotation. Again, McGowan says that the inerrantist argument is that, quote, since God is perfect and does not mislead us, and since God is all-powerful and able to do all things, it is inconceivable that he would allow mistakes in this process of Scripture production. He continues, One can see the logic of this progression from biblical proposition, that is, Scripture is God-breathed, to implication, that is, therefore, Scripture must be inerrant, by means of a conviction about the nature and character of God, that is, He's perfect and therefore does not lie or mislead, page 114. This inerrantist presupposition sets McGowan's agenda for this part of his book, 
as he says, quote, First, I shall demonstrate that inerrancy is, at best, an implication rather than a biblical doctrine. Second, he says, I shall demonstrate that it is rationalist. And third, I shall demonstrate that the underlying assumption underestimates God and undermines the significance of the human authors of Scripture. According to McGowan's view, then, one should believe that every word of the Bible is divinely inspired, but not that the Bible is without error. My paper this afternoon will attempt to respond from John's apocalypse to uh, McGowan's views and others who align themselves with that sort of view. I'll contend the following. One, that John is more explicit about the doctrine of inerrancy than many think. Two, that John in particular explicitly refers to Christ's character as true and then applies the attribute of truth from Christ's character to his oral word and then the written word of Revelation being true, alethanos. Thus, I'll argue that John repeatedly sees a clear connection between the flawlessness of Christ to that of his flawless oral word and then his flawless written word. In the conclusion, I'll reflect on whether this is a unique feature of John's apocalypse. Is this just a weird apocalyptic view? Uh, and uh, how it relates to other apocalyptic books like Daniel and Ezekiel, or whether there's some pointers in Revelation itself that applies John's notion of the full truth, the unswerving truth of his book, to that of other books of the Old Testament. There will also be comment on what I call, and is commonly known as the word concept confusion, concerning whether or not the actual word inerrancy uh, has to be used in Scripture for the concept to be a biblical concept. We will argue that while the precise word inerrancy does not appear in Scripture, the concept does. Uh, This does not make the doctrine an implication unless one violates uh, the word-concept distinction. Now, there are two other parts of this paper that I'm giving this afternoon. I'm not going to have time to read. Uh, They uh, form some background to this, but I don't think they're essential. In uh, the first part that I'm not going to read, uh, I argue that John was given the same prophetic commission to write God's word as was Ezekiel the prophet. Uh, For example, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, uh, chapter 17, 1 through 3, and uh, chapter 21, verses 9 through 10. Uh, This is not original with me. Uh, Second, I look at the significance of uh, the famous Revelation 22, 18 through 19 for the prophetic authority of the written form of Revelation, where John puts his writings on an authoritative par with Moses' scripture, uh, alluding almost quoting from Deuteronomy 4. Remember the famous, whoever adds uh, to the words of this book, I will uh, add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Whoever takes away from the words uh, which are written in this book, I will take away uh, uh, his part from the tree of life and the holy city which are written in this book. But uh, I'm going to skip those. I will return to 22, 18 to 19 very briefly at the end. The section I'm now going to elaborate on is John's prophetic commission to write true words is based on the truthful character of God and Christ from whom the words come. Now, in addition to the background of Ezekiel, how does the book of Revelation itself attest to the nature of John's written record? The repeated commands to write at the beginning of each of the seven letters, you'll remember he's told the beginning of the seven letters, write to the church of Philadelphia, etc., um, they themselves, those, those uh, uh, repetitions of the command to write are direct develop, development of the initial prophetic command in Revelation 1, 10 through 11 for him to write. It's a prophetic commission there. 
The Ezekiel commission involved the prophet speaking and writing down God's very words. We now see that John's commission is defined in the same manner. The imperative to write in the letters carries the same idea. After each command uh, to John to write, the following message becomes the words of Christ, and at the end of the letter are seen as the written words of the Spirit. Can any of these seven epistolary messages contain uh, human error on John's part mixed with the true message of Christ and the Spirit? There seems to be no hint in that direction in the letters that this could be the case. It almost seems pedantic to ask the question. In fact, after the command to write in each of the letters, there follows immediately Christ's self-introduction, drawing on some feature by which he was portrayed in chapter 1 in his act of giving John his prophetic commission. Some features in chapter 1 and in chapters 2 to 3 describe Christ as a divine being. As such a divine being, it is hard to imagine that Christ could commission John to write his words, that is, Christ's words, and the countenance that John's words would not at every point unswervingly represent Christ's words. That is, John's carrying out of Christ's commission cannot contain human flaws that would obfuscate Christ's message at any point. Now, so far, uh, these conclusions about John's uh, uh, flawless message are logical deductions. Um, one could say, let's be careful. Uh, logical deductions, which I, I think do flow out of the data in Ezekiel and in Revelation, these inferences um, are inferences drawn by others, but I'm now going to argue that these inferences are made exegetically uh, explicit elsewhere in the apocalypse. The remainder of this paper then will argue, number one, that John is commanded to write down the words from God and Christ in a book. Number two, and the written words will be faithful and true. Why? Number three, because they come from Christ and God who are, quote, faithful and true. Therefore, God and Christ's character as unswervingly true is given as the basis of John's written word in Revelation as being unswervingly true. Thus, the logical deduction about the nature of Scripture that is today increasingly being called into question is the very deduction that I will conclude is exegetically being made in Revelation. There are four passages in Revelation that together I uh, will compose my argument, um, and they are the following. So I present these deductively, and then we're going to work through them more inductively. First of all, Revelation 3.14, speaking of Christ, his character and his oral word. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. So he's the Amen, and he's the faithful and true witness. Revelation 19.9, he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are true words of God. As we'll see, this is not uh, as directly involved, but I think it does play a role. But now 21.5, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. I'm going to contend that there's an intratextual use uh, here from 3.14 and also in 22.6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophet, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So those are the passages that I will spend the remainder of uh, my time on uh, this afternoon in this lecture. So let's first focus on Revelation 3.14. 
Revelation 3.14 focuses on the truthful divine character of Christ. And the other passages we read apply this divine attribute to John's written word, which is also to be considered faithful and true. In fact, the statements in Revelation 21.5 and 22.6 are a direct development of 3.14 since they all contain the statement, faithful and true. Furthermore, the link between Revelation 3.14 and that of 21.5 and 22.6 is strengthened by observing that all three of these passages allude to Revelation, I'm sorry, to Isaiah 65.16, which says, Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of Amen, or truth, or faithfulness. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth or the amen or of faithfulness because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. Now, the allusion to Isaiah 65, 16 uh, in Revelation 3, 14 needs to be established. And then I will attempt to argue uh, how it's to be seen in the other passages later in Revelation that are dependent on Revelation 3, 14. That Isaiah 65.16 is the primary source for Christ's titles in Revelation 3.14 is supported by several lines of evidence, which I will only summarize here. I've written an article in New Testament Studies, um, approximately 1997. Summarized it at uh, uh, an excursus in my commentary at Revelation 3.14, if if you want uh, much more elaboration. But I will summarize it here. Um, And here we'll look at... Our overhead. So we have here uh, Isaiah 65, the God of Amen, the God of Amen. Twice, Christ is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Was there enough there for an illusion? Or is this, am I a parallel maniac? Um, early Greek Bibles have, at this point, more than coincidentally, I think, not only Amen, which uh, Theodotion has, but some have Alethanos, which is what Aquila, Drome, and a, a, another LXX manuscript have, and still others use faithful, using a nominal uh, participial form of pisteo, as um, read um, actually by Aquila. Um, true is read by the uh, Septuagint. Um, the Amen is a Semitic equivalent to the Greek faithful, pistos, as well as true alethanos, which is evident from the Septuagint's typical translation of verbal and nominal forms of the root Amen in Hebrew, to be faithful, mainly by pistos, but also sometimes by alethanos. So this may well indeed, on its own, you see, be an elaboration of what the Amen is, faithful and true. This would uh, uh, have a good precedent for the way the uh, LXX translates Amen elsewhere. See Hatch and Redpath in that regard. Therefore, the threefold name in Revelation 3.14 could be an expanded translation of Isaiah's Amen. Um, he's the Amen, faithful and true. Such an amplification of Isaiah's Amen is pointed to further by recalling that the Hebrew text twice refers to God as the God of Amen. Twice. Which is translated in the following way as I've said, by the different LXX versions, some have Amen, some have uh, Alethanos, and some have a form of Pisteo, um, used adverbally of God doing what he's doing faithfully. 
In this light, the title, The Faithful and True Witness in Revelation 3.7, Revelation 3.14, I think is best taken as an interpretative translation of Amen from Isaiah 65.16. Thus, the Greek versions of Isaiah 65.16 together have virtually the same amplified renderings as that of Revelation 3.14. Nowhere else in Scripture are these three words, Amen, faithful and true, found in combination except in the Septuagintal tradition of Isaiah 65 and in Revelation 3.14. And this is true even with the combination of faithful and true. The one exception is Daniel 2.45, um, which is talking about his vision being faithful and true. But there's no use of amen there. Another feature pointing to an allusion to Isaiah 65.16 in our passage. Uh, Revelation 3.14 is that amen in both the Old and New Testament usually is a response by people to a word from... Uh, uh, God or to a prayer. Sometimes, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus will say, Amen, Amen, Lego Humane. Um, but an observation underscoring a further specific link between Isaiah 65 16 and Revelation 3 14 is that these are the only two passages in the entire canon where God or another person, i.e., Jesus, is addressed as Amen. This is not an observation unique to me. Fakes and his uh, work on the use of Isaiah and Revelation has made the point, as have others. So even without the, the LXX expansions in some way identifying this text with Revelation, it probably is an allusion to Isaiah 65, 16. It may be that Jesus is referring to the precedent of uh, that uh, uh, Septuagintal tradition, or it, the Septuagintal tradition serves as a precedent to show that this is a very viable way to expand um, Isaiah 65, 16. It's hard to know which is the case. Finally, the blessing of the God of truth, which is only generally referred to in Isaiah 65, 16, is precisely understood in the following verse of Isaiah 65, 17 to be the new creation which he will bring about. You remember the famous verse. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Likewise, the directly following clause in Revelation 3.14, after the amen, the faithful and true witness, is, you remember what it is? The beginning of the creation of God, which probably refers not to the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, but to the resurrected Jesus as the beginning of the eschatological new creation. The pattern is this. We have Isaiah 65, 17, the God of Amen, the God of Amen. And immediately after that, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Here we have an allusion to Revelation 3, 14. Christ is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. And then, is it coincidental that Christ is spoken of as the beginning of the creation of God? Uh, I've inserted new there because I think we're not talking about Genesis 1, but we're talking about the uh, beginning of... Uh, uh, of the eschaton in Christ's resurrection as the beginning of that new creation. Just as in Isaiah 65, 16 to 17, so in Revelation 3, 14, the divine attributes of amen, faithful and true as well, are followed by a reference to new creation. I think this shows further identity between our passage here and Isaiah. That Christ is the beginning of the creation of God 
and that this refers not to the first creation but to the new creation is also apparent from recognizing that Revelation 3.14 is not just a development of Isaiah 65.16 but is an intratextual development of Revelation 1.5. Notice, 1.5, Christ is the homartus hopistos followed by the firstborn from the dead. Here, Christ uh, is the Amen, the Hamartus Hopistos Kai Elethanos. Probably this is developing this. Probably he's exegeting this in the light of Isaiah 65, 16, interpreting Scripture by Scripture. And then follows it up with the beginning of the creation of God. And uh, again, we have a pattern here. Just as resurrection followed Christ as the faithful witness here, faithful one, the, 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 the faithful witness. So likewise here we have a reference to the beginning of the creation of God which we know um, uh, throughout the New Testament uh, especially in Paul uh, Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. In fact we're going to see that this very reference, Isaiah 65 16, forms the basis uh, for Revelation 21 1, behold I saw new heavens and earth um, old things have passed away new things have come so that we're talking about consummation of the eschatological creation here. I think we're talking about the inauguration of the eschatological new creation. So we have both references to Isaiah 66, uh, 65, 16, as well as probably using that text to develop Revelation 1, 5. Now the first parallel in 1, 5, Christ is a faithful witness then is directly followed by his being firstborn from the dead. Just as in 3.14, the faithful witness is followed by beginning of the creation of God. So the parallel shows the beginning of the new creation of God has begun in Jesus' resurrection. Now this parallel is demonstrated further by recalling that every one of Christ's self-introductions, which 3.14 is, in each of the other letters in Revelation 2 to 3 is either a restatement or development of something in chapter 1. It's unlikely that the phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, is the only part of Christ's seven self-introductions that is not derived from chapter 1. Because nowhere in chapter 1 does it talk about uh, Christ as the beginning of the creation of God. What's closest to that? I think it's his being firstborn from the dead. I think it's probable that this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, is not alluding then to the first creation of Genesis, but is an interpretative paraphrase of Jesus as the firstborn of the dead, and thus as the beginning fulfillment of Isaiah 65, 16, by his resurrection. Now, the blessing of the God of truth, or amen, or faithfulness, which is only generally referred to in Isaiah 65, 16, is precisely understood in the following verse of Isaiah to be that promised blessing of the new creation which he will bring about. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. This name of God is his guarantee name of Amen, faithful and true, is his guarantee, his unswerving guarantee that he will surely bring about a new creation, which he promises to do in 65.16. Therefore, God promises in 65.16 to 17 to create a new earth. He gives assurance in verse 16 that he'll fulfill this promise because he's completely trustworthy, unswervingly dependable, reliable, and true. God's word of promise is true, and it cannot be broken or nullified, nor can he be seen to be mistaken in making this promise. Maybe there'll just be a partial new creation, perhaps. No, a complete one. 
So the main point of what I want to say about Revelation 3.14 is that Christ is identified with the true, faithful, and omnipotent God of Isaiah 65.16. Since Jesus is identified with the God of Isaiah, by the way, an amazing Christological statement then about his character. He is the Amen. This is an identification Christology. He is identified with Yahweh of Isaiah 65.16. And since he is identified with the God of Isaiah, he is just as unswervingly trustworthy, unswervingly dependable, reliable, and true in his character and his word. Because after the Amen, he's the faithful and true witness. There's a direct link between his character as being Amen and his word being faithful and true. I would hope that no Christian theologian would doubt that God's and the divinely resurrected Christ attribute of truth could mean that there is some imperfection or error in them. But the question arises, while God and Christ, and we're talking about the resurrected Christ now, by the way, um, being compared with Yahweh, the question arises, while God and Christ's character and spoken word is true, that is, unswervingly flawless, could not some inaccuracies enter into the human recording in the scripture of this spoken word? Would not such fallibility in part of the recording of scripture reflect the human facet of the Bible and of God's accommodation to human fallibility? In the case of Revelation, I think we have an answer to this question. In Revelation 21.5, let's look at that now. So we're going to deal with Intratextuality. I make a distinction. Everybody has their own terms. Intertextuality, I see, is, is a, a relationship between texts by different authors, uh, especially later texts uh, alluding to and developing earlier texts. Intratextuality would be uh, uh, a development within a book of an earlier passage later in that book. The text we're going to look at now is 21.5. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Now here, God commands John to write the announcement of verse 5a because these words about the coming new creation are faithful and true. Pistoi kai alethanoi. This phrase is rooted also in Isaiah 65, 16, and probably at the same time a development of the use of that Isaiah text from 314, as we've seen. Against this background, the expression of 21.5 is to be seen as an interpretative translation of Amen from Isaiah 65.16. Accordingly, Revelation 21.5 is a development uh, then of 3.14, which interprets Isaiah's Amen in the same way and is directly connected to an expression about the new creation. Here are the comparisons. Notice, these are, in Greek, they're plural. Here, they are singular. Talk about that in a moment. Um, The allusion to Isaiah 65, 16 in this text, I've stated 21.5b first, and then this is 21.5a. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. It's not only the words faithful and true that go back, partly at least, to Isaiah 6, uh, 65, 16. But that phrase, behold, I make all things new, a kind of poio panta, is a reference to Isaiah 43, 19 and 65, 17. 
This is not me. This is Nestle Alon and other commentators. And then he refers to this declaration as so appropriately faithful and true. This declaration itself is a development of the earlier allusion to Isaiah 65, 17, and 21, 1. Quote, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. All of this further cements a direct link, then, between 65, 16, 17, and 314 and 21.5. A difference between 314 and that of 21.5, as I said, is that uh, uh, here, the words are plural. Here in 314, they are singular, faithful and true. It doesn't come out in the English, certainly in the Greek. The likely reason for the difference is that the focus in 314 is on the character of the singular Christ, whereas in the latter, the focus is upon God's or Christ's written words that John is commanded to write down. Thus, Revelation 21.5 takes the statement about Christ's character and word in Revelation 3.14, along with its allusion to Isaiah 65.16-17, and applies it now to John's writing down of God's or Christ's words. These may be Christ's words. Quote, Behold, I'm making all things new. In particular, the expression, quote, These words are faithful and true, provide the reason. Notice, right, for provides the reason, haughty, for why John is commanded to put into writing God's words. Right, because these words are faithful and true. In other words, the affirmation about Christ's unswervingly true character and unswervingly true word in Revelation 3.14, as we've seen in that text, and in Isaiah 65.16, about God to which it alludes, is applied to the nature of God's or Christ's words in written form, in this text, which John is commissioned to write. The inference that is being made from 3.14 is that just as Christ's divine character and spoken word is unswervingly true, flawless, so is John's recording of the divine words in written form. He is to write such unswervingly true divine words in order that the churches may have a pure and undoubted divine word addressed to them in writing. Now, 22.6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true, in plural. And the Lord, the God of the spirits, the prophet, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Revelation 22.6 serves as a concluding statement for both the vision of 21.1 through 22.5, as well as for the whole book. I'll leave this up here for a moment. The speaker could be Jesus, since verse 7 continues the statement um, about uh, where Jesus is the, is the speaker. The speaker could just as well be an angel in line with the identification of the third person, he, in introducing visions in 21, 9 through 10 and 22, 1. Verse 6 summarizes the preceding vision of the new Jerusalem, which is apparent from its placement immediately after that vision, and its verbal repetition of 21, 5, quote, these words are faithful and true, pistoikai alethanoi. As we've seen from the discussion of 21.5, the phrase is based, again, on Isaiah 65.17, probably keeping in mind, too, to some degree, 3.14. And this expresses confidence in God's forthcoming act of new creation, which will come true. Why? Because God's word of promise is true and cannot go awry, cannot be nullified, cannot be seen to be mistaken. Indeed, the clause in 21.5 that we looked at connotes precisely the same idea in conjunction with allusions to 
Isaiah 43, 18 to 19, 65, 17, and 66, 22. Now the same wording in 22, 6. Thus repeats the same idea of certainty about God's statements in all of 21, 6 to 22, 5 about his future act of new creation. The purpose of the repetition is to emphasize this idea. Accordingly, the same conclusions about 21.5 are present here in 22.6. Christ's unswervingly true character and absolutely true oral word in Revelation 3.14 is applied through intertextuality to the nature of his words in written form. The inference that is being made from 3.14 is that just as Christ's divine character and spoken word is flawless in 3.14, so it may be inferred that John's writing down, God's command for him to write down the divine words will be a flawless writing down. Though there is not reference explicitly in 22.6 to the written form, it is likely in mind because of the parallel with 21.5 and because the following context immediately refers to the words of this book in 22.9, in 22.7, the words of the prophecy of this book, and in 22.10, the words of the prophecy of this book. John heard and saw these things and wrote them down in a book. 22.8. Now, let's look at 19.9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. John's commanded to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The angel then immediately adds, These are true words of God. Then immediately, you don't have true and faithful here. But I think it's worth pointing this passage out. That the second assertion is the ground for the first is also pointed to by the connection between the very similar sayings in 21.5 where John is first commanded to write about the coming new creation, and then it is immediately added, quote, for these words are faithful and true. Now, it's less apparent here in 19.9 that there is an allusion to Isaiah 65.16 or 3.14 intertextually, but the reference to true may be an abbreviation of faithful and true from these other two passages. Regardless, however, the meaning is effectively the same. John is to put in written form God's words through the angel because they're true words of God. The phrase of God indicates that they derive from or have their source in God. That is, these words are true because they come from God, who is true. It is likely not coincidental that only two verses later, Christ is called faithful and true. And maybe that statement is in some way related to this uh, uh, statement here in verse 9. Because only a few verses later, he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Another identification uh, with Yahweh text uh, from the old LXX. The only place where you find Lord of Lords and King of Kings is when the God of Israel humbles Nebuchadnezzar. So Jesus may be in mind here in 1990. It's hard to know whether it's the Father or the Son. If so, Christ's faithful and true character, if it is him, is at least partly related to John's being John's written word being faithful and true. The character of the divine Christ may well be part of what's behind this phrase, perhaps. Verse 10 in chapter 19 affirms that what John is writing is a part of the testimony of Jesus, which is, quote, the spirit of prophecy. The mention of Penuma 
Spirit may mean that it is a prophetic testimony inspired by the Spirit. Perhaps an objective genitive, as many take it, cared, etc. Thus, John's written words are faithful and true also because he is a prophet inspired by God's Spirit. In addition to the letters of Revelation 2 to 3, that the Spirit inspires John is apparent also in 14, 13, quote, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. John is commanded to write. And what he writes is affirmed by the Spirit to be true and dependable. Richard Balkum adds with respect to this verse, Quote, the words of the Spirit are the Spirit's response, speaking through John to the heavenly voice. As John obeys the command to write the beatitude, the Spirit inspiring him adds an emphatic endorsement of it. Verse 14, so the Spirit is guiding the writing down, what he's doing. Now, the last section of the paper is titled, Reflection on the Significance of the Reference to the Written Words of Revelation being referred to as authoritative are true and faithful. Revelation 19, 9, 21.6, 22.6, all refer to the written words of the book as true or faithful and true uh, or as inviolable. That not mere concepts, but the very written words are to be seen as unswervingly true is apparent in noticing especially the specific references in 19.9 and 21.9. There, only one sentence is spoken by God or an angel, and then the sentence is referred to as, quote, these words. I think it's implausible that there's reference here only to an unerring concept that is expressed through a mixture of perhaps some imperfect words or a partially imperfect concept. It's really pedantic, I think, even to pose such a question, but the present debates over the inerrancy of Scripture call for posing such a question, the very questions that are posed. Thus, both the concept expressed by the words and each of the individual words themselves, that is, the way they're put together to form a speech act, are absolutely authoritative so that words cannot be separated from concepts. In the same manner, all the words of this book, Revelation 22, 9 through 10, and 18 through 19, where the phrase is found, that is, the entire form of Revelation carries the same exact notion. Conclusion. If absolute perfection be granted about God's character and spoken word, then the same should be granted about John's written word. This inference is the same inference that John draws, I think. Since Christ's character and spoken word are impeccable, John is commissioned to record Christ's words because they come from the divine being whose character is without flaw, including his knowledge of all things. The point, therefore, of this entire address, this lecture today, is that the implication or theological inference that McGowan and others argue to be unbiblical, an unbiblical uh, deduction, is the very inference that John repeatedly makes. That is, since God is unswervingly flawless, and so is Christ, their word also is orally, and therefore, when it's to be put into writing, and it's called faithful and true, referring to the same text of Revelation in Isaiah likely the same thing is true of the written word. One might conclude that what Revelation teaches about its written nature cannot be applied to other parts of Scripture. Maybe this is a unique apocalyptic uh, thing here. But several observations, I think, militate against this. One, in one of the key texts examined above, Revelation 22.6, John is grouped with other prophets. Quote, the Lord, the God of the spirits of prophets, 
sent his angel. Now, this likely includes not mere New Testament prophets, but Old Testament prophets, especially since the phrase, quote, the spirits of the prophets in 22.6 is an allusion to Numbers 27.16. Again, not original with me, where it speaks of the Lord God of spirits. And there it refers to God's role of replacing Moses with Joshua, who would now be the prophetic spokesman for God's people. See Numbers 27, 12 to 21. Secondly, in other words, here's another observation militating against the notion that the faithful and true written word is different from the faithful and true God in Christ, who commissioned John to put their word into written form. Second point militating against that, John is repeatedly given the same commission as a prophet, as was Ezekiel, the prophet. So we're also saying here that probably what he's saying extends beyond his own writing to other prophets and to Ezekiel. Thirdly, the totality of John's written record in Revelation is seen to be faithful and true in the same way that God prophesied in Isaiah that the new creation would definitely occur because Yahweh is faithful and true had prophesied it. So this truth is also found in Isaiah. Fourthly, the concluding phrase of 22.6, God sent to show what must come to pass quickly, that phrase is an acknowledged reference to Daniel 2.45, which records the conclusion of the prophet Daniel's report of his vision. That's faithful and true in Daniel 2. John's clearest affirmations about the absolute and unswerving truth of his own book is explicitly based on other apocalyptic works like Ezekiel and Daniel with which he puts himself on a par. Thus, would not John's affirmation about Scripture's full truth be a claim that can only be made about apocalyptic books in the canon in which the apocalyptists receive their revelation directly by vision and audition from God? Is it only limited to those kinds of apocalyptic books? I think it needs to be remembered that John did not write down as a secretary taking dictation. Maybe partly he did, but after his visions, it's acknowledged he put pen to paper and likely himself added some Old Testament allusions in various places so that the book is a mix of an apocalyptic vision and a literary production, though under the guidance of the Spirit, as different texts have said. Furthermore, that John's appeal goes outside the apocalyptic Old Testament genre is clear from recalling that he puts himself on a par with the authority of Moses in Revelation 22, 18 through 19. Remember subtracting and adding there. Deuteronomy, that's from Deuteronomy 4 and 29. In addition, John makes reference to the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer, which implies, since he clearly puts himself on a par with several of these OT writers, Moses, Daniel, and Ezekiel, that he would not only have the same view of their writings as he does of his, but it implies that he would have the same view of other Old Testament writings uh, outside of Moses, Daniel, and Ezekiel, uh, the same kind of view. It's likely for this reason that John alludes to all the various Old Testament books that he does, since they hold the same status of authoritative scripture for him. In fact, much like Revelation 19 and the passages we've seen in 21 and 22, Psalm 119, 137 to 142, refers to God's character as righteous and then immediately says his written scripture is righteous, pure, and true. I'll read the passages. 119, 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. That, conclusion is made there. Uh, 119, 138, you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. Again, coming from 137, where righteous are you, O Lord. 119, 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. There's a connection. It's further interesting that in narrating his prophetic call according to the pattern of Ezekiel's uh, in Revelation 10, 9, John weaves in 
Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my palate, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In Revelation uh, 10, 9 through 10, which says, in your mouth, it, God's word, will be sweet as honey found in both verses. In the psalm, this is then directly followed by the psalmist contrasting understanding gained from God's precepts in contrast with every false way. 119, Perhaps Psalm 119, or Psalm 19, 10 is included in the allusion. God's written law is referred to as sweeter also than honey and compared with the judgments of the Lord being true and contrasted with errors. Who can discern his errors? Psalm 19, 2. Likewise, Revelation 16, 5 and 7 compare God's righteous character with his righteous judgments, which against the background of the combined Old Testament allusions refers to God's word in Scripture. Let's look at that for a moment. We have Revelation 16, 5. You are righteous. Psalm 118, 37. Um, righteous are you, are you, Lord, and righteous is your judgment or judgments. Now, after saying God is righteous, look at Revelation 16, 7. Uh, a couple of verses later. True and righteous are your judgments. And... Um, it would seem that at least Revelation is uh, drawing uh, this connection. Um, some might object to my overall argument by saying that nowhere does John or the Old Testament refer to the actual word inerrancy in application to Scripture. But I think this would be making uh, uh, the word concept confusion. I've tried to show the words used by John in chapters 19, 21, and 22, true and faithful, we're essentially about the same concept as God being unswervingly true without error. His oral word being the same. And then the extension to write it down using the same Old Testament uh, Isaiah allusion would indicate, uh, uh, unless there are greater facts against it, uh, that the written word is the same. In fact, some of John's very allusions to the Old Testament, as in Psalm 119, uh, contrast God's word as true and sweet to false and error. In this regard, it's instructed to compare Second Peter 1, 20 to 21 and the reference there to, quote, Scripture, not made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, which is immediately contrasted with who? False prophets who, quote, malign the way of truth and speak, quote, false words. And the great God-breathed text of Second Timothy 3.16 is placed in the same kind of contrast with false teaching. Perhaps I come closest to basing my argument on an implication when I assume that God's and the resurrected Christ's character is unswervingly true and without error. Even incidental error in their absolute and exhausted knowledge of even the most apparently unimportant facts about creation or humanity or about the past, present, or future. I am assuming that because Scripture seems to indicate that. If we don't assume that, I think we're in very bad shape as theologians. But even this is a presupposition. And by the way, I'm speaking of the resurrected Christ. I know there's some debate about uh, the human Christ and kenosis. We're talking about the resurrected Christ now. That's very important. So I will admit that uh, my presupposition about the character of God and the resurrected Christ is a presupposition, but I think it's supported by Scripture. So to repeat, the theological inference that some evangelicals are saying is unbiblical is a very exegetical inference that John and other parts of Scripture repeatedly make. That is, since God's character is unswervingly true and Christ's character 
so is their word, and so then is the written word, which they're commanding John to write down, and it's called, uh, because it's to be written down, because it's faithful and true. Now, one could say, okay, really, if you look carefully at that statement, uh, uh, write, for these are true words of God. Isn't, aren't the true words of God still just the oral ones? Couldn't, when he goes to write, could not there be some slippage, if you will? I think what, my, my answer to that would be no. The reason is, number one, uh, the connection between faithful and true. Uh, the whole point is, because the oral word is faithful and true, write it, John. And I am making a deduction that, therefore, probably John's word his written word is the, of the same character. But what makes that not so much of an inference is to remember that the command to write in 19, 21, 5, and 22, 6 is an intertextual development of write in the initial commission in 1, 9 through 10 at the beginning of the letters where, remember, the written form is, are the words of the Spirit and then the end of the book says, as 1.3 says, that um, 21.22.7, the words of the prophecy of this book. 21.9, the words of this book. 21.10, the words of the prophecy of this book. 20, 22.10, uh, 22.18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in the book. It looks like what John has written down is pretty inviolable too. And I think that this shows that the commission for him to write the oral faithful and true word, uh, because it's faithful and true, really ensures, because he's a prophet, that it will be faithful and true in its written form. Thank you for your patience and listening to this lecture. I, I, was, I was supposed to stop a little bit earlier to uh, field questions. Um, I know that was a lot of data, but I'm happy to um, try to do what I can to answer any particular questions. It's a very difficult topic. We all know this is a debate in evangelicalism, and um, we all do our best to try to exegete the text and, um, and to relate it to theology. I do think that the old and the new is an area that hadn't been applied to this issue, and that's why I wanted to do it. Well, you, you've asked a, a question that's a massive question. Uh, I'll try to summarize it. But uh, before I do, I'll direct you to two of my chapters in my book, The Erosion of Inerrancy, where I directly address the issue of the cosmology of the ancient Near East and the Old Testament. And uh, my ultimate conclusion is this, that, uh, I mean, there, there, 
There are five ways you can take uh, the A&E parallels with um, the Old Testament writers. One, they're polemical. Um, and uh, uh, I don't have a problem with that at all. Uh, two, uh, they're a result of uh, common grace. Uh, people are made in the image of God, all people, believers and unbelievers, pagans and Israelites in the ancient world. So it would make sense that there are some thoughts that uh, are reflective of God to some degree. For example, the way they portrayed their temples. Very, very similar. Uh, maybe due to common grace agreements. Uh, thirdly, uh, maybe due to early tradition uh, that's been garbled in the ANA, more pristinely preserved in Israel, or... Uh, sometimes uh, uh, Israel may take some of the forms of the a and and fill it with new revelation, sometimes maybe without polemical intentions. The fifth view is they unconsciously absorbed a mythological worldview, and you got a real problem. Uh, I don't think that's the right view. Now, for myself, to more specifically answer your question, I think that these kinds of uh, cosmological comments and descriptions and portrayals like pillars, uh, like the Rakiak, in uh, Genesis 1 and Ezekiel 1, supposedly the dome, um, uh, a number of these uh, descriptions of windows in heaven. Uh, my own view is that they're either phenomenological, some of them, the ancient person, in the same way the modern person might describe them in such a way, or uh, they're related to the earth as a temple. And um, if that's the case, I don't think, in other words, many of these statements are making um, uh, sort of ancient scientific comments about how the ancient person uh, saw the world, but they're theological statements by the Israelites um, of the cosmos as a temple. And if that's the case, I think we ought to hold the same view today, myself, that the cosmos is a temple and it points to the new cosmos as being the final consummate temple of, um, of God. Are there some problematic areas sometimes in those cosmological descriptions that don't fit either of those? Yeah. Um, but I think for the most part, I can account for those, and I, I, I address that in two chapters, about 60 pages in my book. That's a summary of it. Um, so, very good question. Thank you. Um, I'd be happy to be pressed on it further. I'm going to take the Rakiak. Uh, <laughs> In, in, in Ezekiel 1. It's related to the platform of the temple. Um, now it's acknowledged that Genesis 1 is temple building episode. God rests after he builds the temple. Whatever's going on with the Rikiak there, and there are a lot of debates about it. Seeley's written in Westminster Theological Journal on this. I'm sure everyone's aware of his work. I disagree with his work, uh, um, as you'll see, uh, but it's a very difficult issue. Uh, but I think well, one way or another, it's a description of a temple. Seeley doesn't even mention the possibility of, uh, of, of Rikiak being part of a temple. If it is, then you've got, you've got a theological intention there. So anyway, thank you.